We're going to begin reading at verse 32 and read through verse 48. We'll be looking at verses 35 through 48. This is not the text I would have chosen if uh, I would have known what God had in mind this morning. And yet I am um, I'm confident this is the text that God has chosen for us and uh, that uh, there is a particularly appropriateness in its own way as Jesus is concerned about uh, people like us who live um, with mortality close at hand, eternity just around the corner. And Jesus wants to speak uh, his truth so that we might prepare ourselves. Let's begin reading at verse 32 of Luke chapter 12. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And then our text. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to him, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. The title of my message this morning is People Get Ready. What if uh, tomorrow morning you woke up and you found... Screaming across maybe your television screen or your favorite news blog or your newspaper in great big red letters, all in caps and bold. The headline read, The End of the World is at Hand. Would you believe it? Or would you think maybe it's just a cheap trick to try, try to boost ratings and sell newspapers? 
Well, you should believe it. You should believe it because Jesus said the very same thing. Jesus said, behold, I am coming soon. And, and it's interesting that uh, we have that saying of Christ most often in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. It shows up four times, that phrase, I'm coming again, I'm, I'm coming soon, four times in the book of Revelations. Three of those times are in the very last chapter. Your very last chapter in the Bible, Revelation 22. In fact, the second to last verse in the Bible, the last thing that Jesus says in the Bible, Revelation 22, verse 17. Surely I am coming soon. I am coming soon. And so the headline you see would be absolutely correct. The end of the world is near. And the Apostle John responds to that proclamation of Jesus, his last proclamation of the Bible. John says, Amen. So be it. Let it be. Come, Lord Jesus. My question to you this morning, is that how you respond? Is that your instinct? If you uh, know that Jesus Christ is returning, if you knew he was, he was coming today even, would your response be, Yes. Or would there be some fear, some concern? Are you eager for Jesus to return? Uh, do you think about it often? Do you think about it ever? Does it ever come across your mind as you're going about your day-to-day -day life? Because we see in our text this morning that one of the things that marks a disciple of Jesus Christ is an ever-increasing awareness of, an expectation of, a looking forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. That, that one of the things that, that marks a disciple of Jesus is this confident expectancy that Jesus is coming back. We don't live in a world where history just is on continual loop and it just turns over and over and over again. We live in a world that's on a, on a track towards a destiny. It has a beginning, it has an ending. And we, if we're going to live in a God-honoring way in the present time, we need to live with both of those truths, the, the reality that God made the world, called it into being, and that God is coming again to judge the world and call it to account. And it's essential, I think, particularly as American Christians, for us to hear the, these words of Christ because there's no denying the fact that we live in a culture fixated on what's right now. We are infatuated with the moment. As I was writing this, working on this Thursday morning, I knew that in the minds of many people, many God's people, that what we're thinking about Thursday morning, if I ask you, what were you thinking about? You're probably thinking about uh, the family getting together today. You're probably thinking about um, how the lion's going to do today. Uh, you're, uh, maybe we're thinking about Black Friday sales. But I would suggest that very few of you were thinking about Monday, much less eternity. Because it's the culture, it's part of the culture we swim in. There is a cultural myopia concerning ultimate and eternal things. So that the plans that we make in our minds, the things we daydream about, the things we focus on, are immediate things. Close at hand things. Quickly passing things. Not necessarily bad things. We, we, we're, we live in this world. It's God's world and we're called to steward it and to steward our gifts. And there's nothing inappropriate about making plans. And, but if that is the entirety, you see, of your existence, if that's, where, if that's the only places your mind and heart go, something's not right. Something's not right. 
When's the last time you spent any time considering the ultimate end of things, the imminent return of Jesus Christ? And when's the last time the fact that Jesus Christ was coming again had any influence on what you did or didn't actually do? And so you see, Jesus this morning is talking to people like us. People who live in a world that's, uh, that's real, that's good, that we are called to honor God in it, and yet a world uh, which we shall soon leave. A world which stands ready to receive, or Jesus is coming again, whether it's ready or not. And so this morning we're going to look first of all at the command and then the consequences. And those are two main points, the, the command and the consequences. The command is found in verse 35, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Jesus is simply calling his disciples to be ready for uh, his coming again. And the rest of the text really is an uh, amplification and application of that main thought, be ready, I'm coming back. I'd like to just start by laying down just the basic facts of the text, and then we'll look at the consequences of those facts. But, but note in, the, in this text, just want to lay before you again something you already know, but we easily forget, that Jesus Christ presents himself in our text as a master. He does this often in the Gospels. The predominant image for the relationship between Jesus and his disciples is not buddy, it's not even friend. He is our friend. When he, right, when he comes back to, to life again and uh, gathers his disciples again, he says, I, I, I'm not just going to refer to you as servants, but I'm going to refer to you as friends because, because I'm telling you what's, what's going to happen. There's an intimacy, there's a friendship, but, but being our friend doesn't mean that he's stopped being our master, our Lord. He'll say, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet you don't do what I tell you to do? And so in this text you find, be like men waiting for the master, the master to come home. Verse 36, you have the same word again, 42, verses 42, 43, and 47. I think it's an image that's not real common or popular in the Christian church here in this country. It sort of runs counter to our American ideals of autonomy, independence. We don't like the idea of someone being over us as master and we're the servant. Maybe it has shades of abuse like a southern plantation owner ruling over his slaves. Well, we can obviously get rid of that I, uh, concept, but Jesus is the loving, merciful master who laid down his life for his sheep, who serves his sheep, but he's still the master. He's still master. He's still Lord. And, and in our text, we just see that Jesus clearly intends us to view him as master and view him as Lord, and that has ramifications. We'll get to that in a moment. The master, secondly, is returning. One of the most important truths of the Bible. And yet it's one of the most easily forgotten realities of our day-to-day lives. You do realize we live in a, in a world that is very much like the Titanic. S- sailing steadily towards a preordained appointment with an iceberg. That's what our world is like. The good ship planet Earth is on an unavoidable Destiny uh, headed directly for the day of judgment, and, and nothing is going to avoid that reality. We're going to meet, this world is going to meet, you are going to meet Jesus Christ. You're going to meet him. The maker of the universe, the potentate of time, king of kings, lord of lords, in flesh, 
the very Son of God, you and I are going to meet him. And there's utterly, absolutely no avoiding that truth. He is coming again. How do you know that? Why should you be absolutely convinced of that? Let me just give a couple reasons. One is because he said he is. He said he was. He said he's coming. To... Jesus doesn't lie. He doesn't even fib. He, he's, he's, not, uh, he's not pretending. He's, he never does that, right? He's the son of God. He's, he says, I'm coming. If he, Jesus says, I'm coming again, then he's coming again. But all, we have other witnesses. We have the holy angels. Remember when Jesus ascended into heaven, the angels come, and the disciples are all standing there looking up into the sky, and, and they say, what, what are you guys, why are you looking up into, into the clouds? This Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. He's, he's coming back. Angels don't lie either. Not the holy angels of God. But I think the most, well, not the most, but one of the most powerful evidences that Christ is returning is that everything he did while he was here on earth was towards that end. You see, the whole point of Jesus' ministry the reason he put aside the glory of heaven and came to earth, the reason he pursued full, absolute, beautiful obedience to God his Father every single day, the reason he was willing to do that even when it was going to cost him the agony of hell, suffering the wrath of God, bearing our sin, the reason he was willing to take that cup in the Garden of Gethsemane and say, not my will, but your will be done, the reason he went to the cross, the reason he rose again from the dead, the reason he ascended into heaven, the reason, the point, is so that there could be a new heaven and a new earth where God's righteousness would cover the earth as the water covers the sea. The new heaven and the new earth is not an extra benefit that comes along with getting saved from your sins. The new heaven and the new earth where God's people will dwell with Jesus Christ and be given to him as his bride to live with him forever and ever and ever with full, eternal, everlasting life. That's the whole point, you see, of Jesus' work. It's the whole point. For Jesus to fail to come again would be for Jesus to abandon all that he has accomplished. So this is what creation is longing for. We read in Romans chapter 8. It's, it's waiting, longing with eager expectation, with groaning for the, for the redemption of God's sons. This is what believers know. How long, O oh Lord, how long? History is moving towards the culminating crescendo of Christ's return. It's going to happen. Evil is going to be banished. All things are going to be made new. But, you see, because Jesus is coming again as Lord and King and Master, there are consequences that. You see, Jesus is not coming simply as a rescuer. So his return is, is, is a day of accounting. That means that waiting for Jesus isn't like waiting for the train. It's not like waiting in your hospital room for the doctor to come and, and treat whatever the illness might be. Jesus, you see, isn't coming simply to help us and to transport us to our final destination. He is doing that, right? He is doing that. Praise God he's doing that. But that's, that's, that's not the flavor of our text here, is it? The flavor of the text here, you see, is the flavor of responsibility and accounting. The text is saturated with that kind of language. Accountability. Responsibility. 
There are blessings for those who are found faithful. There are judgments for those who are found unprepared. So when Jesus says be ready, what he, what he means is be ready for the accounting. Be ready for the accounting. Revelation 22, Jesus says the same thing. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. That's the, that's the flavor of our text here this morning. And it's not a flavor that just kind of disappears. Jesus brings it right back in Revelation chapter 22. That the day will be a day of, of an accounting. And then Jesus adds this, that the hour of his return is unknown. Unknown. You don't know when uh, your personal accounting will be required. You don't know when you're going to die. You don't know when you're going to uh, face Jesus. It, it might be through your death. It might be the, the heavens splitting open and Jesus Christ re returns. Jesus makes that very clear. Verses 39, if, know this, if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do, you do not expect. If you knew that your house was going to be uh, broken into and burglarized this afternoon, you would most likely make preparations. You'd probably send the wife and the kids off to Grandma's house and invite the local police department over for coffee. <clears throat> I know I would. Right? Let's be ready. But thieves don't send out advance notices. They come when you don't expect them. That's why they're effective. Right? And Jesus says that's exactly the way it's going to be with the coming of the Lord. He's going to come when people don't expect it. He's going to come like a thief in the night. We find that uh, Jesus using that language in, in uh, the Gospel of Matthew. And, and it's imagery that captured the apostles' minds because both Peter and Paul use exactly the same language. 1 Thessalonians 5, you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. 2 Peter 3, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. They use the same language. Now, why does Jesus use that imagery? It doesn't sound very comforting, does it? It doesn't sound very encouraging. It sounds scary. So why does Jesus do that? Why does he use that kind of language? Well, you, I, I, you can ask him, I'm sure, right, when, when, when you're with him. But I think Jesus is using this language because his concern isn't our immediate comfort, but our eternal welfare. His concern is that you don't miss this. That you make yourself ready because there's going to be incredible loss and unbelievable joy depending on if you're ready or not. And so Jesus wants, he wants us to be ready. And we don't know when he's coming back, which means we need to be continually ready. So the command is be ready. And then Jesus speaks of the consequences. And he talks about the blessedness of those who've served faithfully and the, and the judgment to fall on those who did not. The blessedness of the faithful servant. There's two blessings mentioned in our text. One is the blessing of being served by the master. Verse 37. Blessed are those, master, those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. Now, uh, it is very difficult for us to really grasp how an astonishing thought that is. 
Um, boys and girls, what would you think if uh, tomorrow morning uh, the President of the United States knocked on your door and uh, asked if he could serve you some hot cocoa and clean your room? That'd be pretty cool. Be st startling, it'd be unbelievable. Doesn't happen. Don't hold your breath, right? Don't say, well, Mom, I'm, I'm going to get at it, but I, I believe the president's stopping by this afternoon. To... It's not going to happen, is it? It's not going to happen. In, in the mind of Jesus' original audience here, these, this, is just, this is not on the radar screen of things that are possible. Servants don't serve, masters don't serve servants, ever, ever. Servants, the, the, the reason they exist is to serve the master. The reason masters exist is to be served. That's how it works. So, and the more important the master is, right, the more impossible this scenario would be. And yet Jesus says that he himself, the very son of God, Alpha and Omega, on this great day is going to invite his servants to recline at table and he will come and serve them. We have an image of this, of course, in John chapter 13 when Jesus celebrates the last Passover with his disciples and, and, he, and they're reclining at table and Jesus gets up and, and uh, wraps himself with a towel as a servant and he begins washing their feet, the most menial task that a servant could do. And what the disciples see in that, what they experience in that is the love of Jesus Christ, John introduces that story in John 13 saying this, having loved his own, he loved them to the very end. In other words, he loved them to the uttermost. He loved them. Can you imagine, do you dare allow yourself to imagine what it would be, what it will be like to have Jesus Christ, the Son of God, manifest his love for you when he serves you at the final wedding banquet? The love of God, the love of Christ, that would make him desire to serve you. Jesus, the Son of God. And yet that's exactly what he promises. And can you imagine the, what a horrible thing it would be to miss out on that service? And to know that Jesus Christ does not have that love for you. You see, that, that one image, this one thought should have incredible power to get us thinking about our Lord's return and what our experience is going to be on that day. Jesus also promises the reward of an, in, in the new heaven and the new earth for those who are faithful in their tasks. So he talks about a wise manager in 42 who sets, a, a, wise, a master who chooses men to manage uh, his household when he's gone. And, and uh, blessed is the faithful manager who gives the servants their food at their appropriate time. Jesus said, tells this story in response to Peter's question, Lord, are you saying these things for everyone or for us? And Jesus doesn't directly answer the question, but it's clear that in, this, in this, uh, this parable, this story, he's speaking to the 12 apostles, at least in its original sense, right? He's, they are the managers over his house. They are going to be the ones who are called to feed God's people their food at the proper time. As they speak the gospel, as they preach it and teach it and, uh, and help people to grow up in their into their salvation. So the, they're the managers, and, and I do believe Jesus intends for the apostles to, to, to hear that they are managers and that as managers, they're going to be held accountable. 
But there will be great blessing for those who manage. Uh, the, the apostles, I believe, have a particular honor in heaven as they are the ones who've laid the foundation of the church. But of course, this would then also apply to all those who have been called to, uh, to feed God's people their food at their proper time. This is why James says, don't be anxious, don't be running into being a teacher of the word because you're going to be held to greater accountability. And that those who are teachers and preachers of the word, it's an awful thing, you see, if, if you're abusing that position, if, you are, if you're failing to do the thing that Jesus has called you to do, if, you, uh, if you're leading your people on to maybe just you know, philosophies of men or your own little uh, faith story, your own little, your own little journey into, into the oblivion of heresy. I just broke my heart to read recently of the pastor stepping down at Mars Hill. Because all that God talk was just too much for him, and he's not sure that, um, not sure what he believes about God anymore. At least he had the, the integrity to step down. He never should have been in the first place. And you know what the tragedy of it is? The tragedy of it is that the leaders of the church said, We are sad to see him go. That's an awful thing to say. When Jesus Christ calls men to preach the word and to feed the people the truth of the gospel. And yet, there's great reward there, not just for preachers and teachers of the gospel. This principle applies to all of us, doesn't it? And, and Jesus has called all of us to a task, no matter how menial you might think it is. Jesus has called you in your relationships. If you're a husband and a father, he's called you to that calling. If you're a wife and a mother, if you're, if you're where, where you work, if you're just a child, you're a, you're a Christian friend. Every aspect of your life has the calling of God stamped on it. And Jesus calls you then to invest yourself in that task, in those duties, as unto the Lord, and there will be an accounting. But it's meaningful. You see, it matters. Jesus has called you to it, and he promises a rich reward for those who are found doing their duty when the Lord returns. If you're doing the laundry and Jesus returns, that's a good day. That's a good day. As you're doing it under the Lord, not just that you get out of doing the laundry, it's just the idea that you're doing what Jesus has called you to do. And you're a mechanic and you're working on the car and you're doing your best at it and you're programming something that it, ultimately, whatever gadget, gadget you're working on, it, 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 in its own sense, it's cool, it's, 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 but it doesn't have eternal significance, but you're working on it does. You're working on it does. As you do it under the Lord. And Jesus promises then a blessing for those who are faithful in their service. But there will be grievous judgment for those who are unprepared. If that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour when he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. That's pretty strong language, don't you think? We'll cut him in pieces? What does he, what does he mean by that? Well, everyone listening to Jesus would know exactly what he meant by that. Because it has an Old Testament reference. He's talking about covenant curses being brought on covenant breakers. If you have your Bible, if you would just turn with me a moment, I'd like you to see this. Jeremiah chapter 34. Jeremiah chapter 34. This is the prophet in, in the last days before Israel goes into captivity. 
Jeremiah chapter 34. You see, in the Old Testament, uh, covenants were made uh, through, um, they, were, they, were, they were formed with blood and sealed with an oath of malediction. What they would do is they would take an animal, they would split it in pieces, and they would lay those pieces in a path, and the parties then would walk through that path with the bloody pieces on both sides, saying, may it be to me as it has been done to this animal if I fail to keep the covenant. If you look in Genesis chapter 15 where God makes a covenant with Abraham, God explicitly commands Abraham to do exactly that. And then God walks through the pieces. God takes on himself the oath of malediction. That if God fails to keep the covenant that he's made with Abraham, may it be done to him. It's an astonishing text. And so people would talk not about, you don't sign your name to a covenant, you cut a covenant. And you lay the pieces down and you take on the obligations as you walk through the pieces. Notice now um, what God says to his people in Jeremiah 34 verse 18. And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between its parts. The officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf. They're going to be cut into pieces. Now, Jesus, God goes on, Jeremiah goes on to explain what that's going to be. They're going to go into captivity. Their, their, their sons are going to fall by the sword. Their daughters are going to be uh, childless or husbandless. The children will be orphans. But when Jesus is talking about cutting into pieces, he's talking about bringing covenant curses upon covenant people. In other words, people, this is the, this is the point. He's not talking to the unbelieving world. The surprising thing about Luke chapter 12 is he's talking to the church. He's talking to the, the people of God, the covenant people, you see. He's not talking about people, what's going to happen to those outside of the covenant on the day of judgment. He's talking about what's going to happen to people inside the covenant community on the day of judgment. He's talking about people who knew the master's will and didn't do it. You see, because people want to... Comfort themselves, just like they did in the Old Testament. We're, we're children of Abraham. Judgment can't touch us. We have nothing to fear. We have the temple. God's not going to let Jerusalem get sacked as long as the temple is here. He's not going to judge us when we are, we are Abraham's children. See, Jesus just turns that completely on its head. Stein writes, being a member of the visible Christian community rather than the true body of Christ does not guarantee reward. It does not even guarantee salvation. Not even being a leader in the Christian community guarantees salvation. Notice, Jesus is not telling uh, this audience, these people, he's not telling them that they are going to lose their salvation. You cannot lose your salvation. What he's telling them is that they were never saved in the first place. And that will just be made evident when he comes again. They, the, the truth is, is that they were unbelievers in fact, no matter what religious external things they had put on. And because they were unbelievers in fact, they will go where unbelievers go, where they will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. They will be placed with the unbelievers. This is, this is heady stuff. Folks, do you, you realize that there will be no greater judgment no greater judgment on the day of judgment than the judgment that will be given to those who knew the master's will, those who claimed to be Christians but were not prepared for the master's return. 
Because you see, the greater your spiritual privilege, the greater your responsibility and the greater your guilt for failing to take advantage of your spiritual privileges. Verse 48, everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand all the more. Think about your spiritual privileges. Think about your spiritual advantages. Were you born and raised in a Christian home? Many of you were. Did you have the Bible read to you as a child? Did you have parents who prayed for you? Many of you did. Are you a member of a church where the gospel is preached, the word of God is taught, where the Holy Spirit is at work? Are you in a church where the Christ is present in the sacraments as they are administered? Are you in a church where discipline, loving discipline is practiced to call people back to the Lord? Do you have Christian friends who know you and love you and pray for you? Have you seen God at work in the lives of other people? Do you, do you have any sense how privileged you are? Do you own a Bible? Have you tasted some of the benefits of being part of the covenant community? Do you have any sense how privileged you are? You are the most privileged people in the world, spiritually speaking. Show me someone with more privileges. He's talking to us. So when you and I stand in front of Jesus on the last day, spiritual privileges and spiritual advantages will be on the table. They'll be considered. To whom much has been given, much is required. I hope that gets your attention. It gets my attention. What in the world am I going to say to Jesus on that last day if I am not prepared to meet him? What in the world am I going to say? When I've been blessed with all that I've been blessed with, what are you going to say? If you're dallying around with the things of God, if you're just sort of, you've taken the name of Christian lightly, but it really has no ultimate concern for you because you're happy living your life and doing your thing, living the dream, just being you, and the thoughts of God rest very lightly on your shoulders, what will you say when you, with all the spiritual privileges that you enjoy, and Jesus comes again? This is, this, this is just not something to mess around with. So, if all this is true, how do you get ready? How do you live ready? You see, because it's not just getting ready. It's not, okay, in, in three days or, or, or three years or 30 years or 300 years, Jesus is coming again, so you need to get ready. No, no, Jesus, the whole point is live ready. Loins girded up. Have your, have, be ready to get to, to go to work. Be ready when the master comes. You can open the door. So what does that look like? Down south during hurricane season, forecasters uh, are very clear about this. Right? They talk about the hurricane and, and where it's going to hit land and what the, um, how, how, how high the winds will be, what kind of damage that will cause. And then they always, always instruct their audience how to be prepared how to board up windows, how to stack up supplies, maybe how to evacuate the area if that's required. You see, hurricanes are not to be messed with. 
Friends, Jesus wants us to realize that the hurricane of his return could happen at any time, and he wants us to be prepared. So let me wrap up with this. How do you, what does that look like? What does that involve? First of all, you, you, have to be, you have to be a Christian. You have to be born again. Jesus said that to Nicodemus, the leader of the Jewish people. You, you need to be born again, Nicodemus. That means that the Holy Spirit has got to change your heart so that, that completely by the gift of God, you have uh, the ability to see your sin and to recognize that you deserve to be condemned and that if God will treat you as you deserve, you will go to hell. And yet, you are, you've been given the ability to see your sin and to grieve your sin, not just the awful things that other people do, but the awful secret things that you do. And your failure to love and your quickness to anger and your, your tendency to lust and to pride and, and to covetousness, your, your ungrateful spirit, that the Holy Spirit just opens your eyes and you see the truth about you and you know it's wrong. You don't pass it off. You don't say, well, I'm better than this person or that person. You don't, just, you don't, you don't comfort yourself with good intentions. Well, that's an area of, of my life that I'm trying to improve. You repent. You repent. You confess it that as the sin that it is, the offense before God that it actually is, that you are not basically a good person that needs to be cleaned up a little bit. You are a lost person without Jesus Christ, and you've got no way to clean it up at all except him. That's what happens when you get a new heart. You have to be, you have to be a Christian. And, and so my question, first question this morning is, are you a Christian? I mean a real Christian. Has God done that work? Is he doing that work in your life? And if he's not, and if you sense the truth of the matter is, I'm sort of dead to spiritual things. I go to church because my parents expect me to or because that's what we sort of do. I, I grew up that way, and that's why I'm here today. If you know that's true about you, Jesus calls you to to repent and confess your sin and cry out to him and ask, beg for a regenerate heart. He gives it. Ask and you will find, right? Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will, you will find. Knock and the door will be open. Nobody goes begging for a regenerate heart and God says, no, I'm sorry. You will, you will receive it as you ask. Lord, I want to be a real Christian. I want to be the real thing. My life is screaming forward at 60 seconds a minute. I, I, I know that I'm going to die and I'm going to meet Jesus. Make me a Christian. And then you see, to be ready is to walk then in that new life with, with faith and repentance and obedience, which means you're not, you're not making yourself better. God is doing a work in you, a work that you're, is deepening your faith and enriching your repentance. So you, you repent more fully and, 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 and more quickly when you, when you see your sin. And you lay hold of with increasing zeal the truth of the gospel that there's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. That's your truth. And that he who began a good work in you is going to carry it on to completion. That belongs to you. And nobody can take it away because it's given to you by God himself. And no matter how weak and how you struggle, no matter how you fail and how you sin, you have the confidence of the gospel that God is not quitting until he's done. And that's for you. And because God is at work in your life, you're at work to be abiding in him. And that's looking like love, increasing love for God and for Jesus Christ, and increasing expectation of his return. You see, that's what Christ calls us to. It's a, it's a lifestyle that, that more and more realizes this world is passing away. Jesus Christ is coming again, and I, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready. Be like men waiting for their master to come home. Are you waiting for your master to come home? 
You see, friends, one, one of the great things that God does in our life is to work that expectancy, that holy expectancy in us. One of the best summaries of what this life looks like is Titus chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. Listen to this. The grace, Paul says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, all kinds of people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Friends, if the Holy Spirit's at work in your life and beg that he does and beg that he does this work, pray, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit of Jesus, Train me to renounce ungodliness. Train me to renounce worldly passions. Train me to live a self-controlled, upright, and godly life. Not a perfect life, but a life with God at the middle of it. And train me to wait with eager expectation from the glorious hope, the appearing of Jesus Christ. So that when Jesus says, I am coming soon, your response can be amen. So be it. Lord, come quickly. Amen. Father in heaven, we are mortals. Every single one of us must die. And every single one of us must face judgment. But oh, Father, I thank you that what you command you give, I thank you that Jesus commands us to be ready and then Jesus gives the Holy Spirit to make us ready. So this, this is not a work that we are left on our own to accomplish. We, do, we cannot do anything on our own. Jesus, you said that. But as we abide in you, as your Holy Spirit abides in us, as we are letting your word feed our soul, we are growing up into salvation. Father, you know every heart here. You know, Lord, the destiny of every person here. Father, I, know, I pray that we could know our destiny as well, that for those who are not in faith today, they would see how awful their, their danger is. And what will they say to Jesus if they are not converted? So, Father, I pray that you give that beautiful, miraculous grace of regeneration and faith faith in Jesus Christ, and then the assurance that comes with it that no one who comes to Jesus in faith is lost, and that all who come to Jesus and abide in Jesus, they do bear fruit by the power of God, for the glory of God. Lord, may we be faithful in the callings you've given to us, no matter how menial it might seem, and may we do all things as unto the Lord, waiting for Jesus to return. Father, I pray that any fear that remains in us would be banished by the truth that if we've come to Jesus Christ, there's no condemnation, there's no shame. Oh, Father, I pray that your spirit would take these truths we've heard today, bring them home, use them for your glory, for our eternal joy. May Jesus come soon. And God's people said, amen.